So um, anyway, we're, we're to the point of the story. This is the New Testament. And the uh, Bible divided into two halves, Old Testament before Jesus, New Testament after Jesus. And specifically, uh, we're in the last moments of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. So Jesus' ministry lasted about how long? Three years. Uh, now, his ministry goes on today. But while he was actually physically here on the earth, talking about three years, we read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the Bible, the Gospels. That's the biography of Jesus. Those are the biographies of Jesus. And, and we're at the place now uh, where Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem one last time. So, end of Jesus' public life and ministry, people who are oppressed by religion love Jesus. And, in, and religion has been an oppressive force for centuries and centuries was the case back in Jesus' time. And people were who, who were oppressed by religion uh, loved Jesus. People who were far from God and didn't have any interest in religion loved Jesus. But the people who sort of ruled religion, the clergy, like myself, they hated Jesus because they had a system, and they were the leaders of that system, and they wanted to protect the system, which gave them all the benefits. And, and Jesus uh, was too powerful for their manipulative tactics and oppressive tactics, and they hated him for it, and they wanted him dead because of it. They just had to try to figure out a way to swing the people against him. So, we're toward the end of this three-year run, and, and what I want to do today in terms of the story, where we're at in the story, Jesus is at the northmost point of the Israelite territory. He's up by Lebanon, and, and he's going to work his way down to Jerusalem where he's going to pay the price for all of our sins on the cross. And he knows this, even though he's a couple weeks away, he knows where things are headed. He knows he's making one last march down through Israel, Israelite territory, and he's going to die there in Jerusalem. Uh, but through this march down to Jerusalem, he's going to reveal parts of his identity piece by piece. And, and, and we're going to see that. And then what we're going to see is the amazing, um, there's a contrast between his identity and his posture. In other words, the more it becomes clear that Jesus is God in the flesh, the more amazing his posture of a servant becomes. We can just see that contrast play out. What does it mean to be God? Well, it means that you serve people and love people. All right. So uh, we're going to start. He's up in Caesarea Philippi, which means nothing except he's way up north. He's at one of the furthest points away from Jerusalem. And this is where, where it all begins. Matthew 16. <clears throat> First glimpse of Jesus' identity. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now remember that Son of Man thing. We're going to get back to that later. And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, a lot of people identify you with some of the prophets of the Old Testament, just great men of God, who spoke on God's behalf. 
But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of God. You're more than just a prophet. You're the Son of God that the Scriptures prophesy about. You're the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. He was Simon, now you're Peter, which was a form of the word rock. And on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then he goes on to it says, he ordered, this is verse 20, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So this is one of the first places where Jesus actually holds up his hand and says, yes, I'm the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. I am the son of God. Now, don't tell anyone. Now, it doesn't really say that I know of uh, why he tells his disciples not to tell anyone. Maybe it's because he doesn't want to, like, go all in yet. In, in, in the, the effects that that would have on the people when he actually says that. Or maybe it's because he wants people to, to come to that conclusion on their own. Or maybe he knows that the fastest way to get human beings to say anything is to tell them not to say anything. But he says, yes, I'm the Messiah. Now don't tell anyone. This is one of the few places in the Gospels that Jesus clearly affirms his identity as the Son of God. Now, I want to hang out here for a minute because Jesus declares that a large part of his identity is that of being a son. Jesus was first a son. Now, the Bible says he was never created. He was from the beginning, but he chooses the identity of a son he really appreciated the relationship he had with Father God. He appreciated the availability of God, and he spoke of it often. This is important because if Jesus is our model and our example, God Almighty in the flesh, and he enjoyed, he really enjoyed and appreciated his status as a son as a child of God. And if this is true of Jesus, how much more should it be true of those who follow him? That we would continually contemplate our status as, as just a child of God. Let me first make the link in Scripture. 1 John 3, 1, just so we're all on the same level here. This is a great verse to memorize. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And maybe your best takeaway from today is nothing more than, than we need to just sit and revel in the fact and enjoy the fact, relish the fact that we are children of God. Wrapping yourself up in our value as a child of God, because we get caught up in so many things that push us so many places, and rarely do I just sit and reflect on the fact, the biblical fact, God's my dad. I'm God's kid. 
Regardless of the job your earthly dad did or didn't do, you have the perfect dad who loves you and calls you his own. Now here's our model, Jesus, who tells us about being a child of God, a son of God, and what that means. He says, truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Now Jesus would continually slip away to be alone with God. If God in the flesh needed to slip away to be alone with God, how much more do we humans need to slip away to be alone with God? And he was profoundly aware of God's activity in his life. He was obsessed with God's activity. And he lived in a kind of back and forth state of seeking God. What are you saying, God? Where are you active? What are you doing around me? And then he would respond in obedience. And this is important for us as followers of Jesus and children of God to be in that kind of a dynamic friendship and relationship and sonship or childship with God as our dad. What are you doing around me? What are you saying? And how can I respond? Because I think that most people really don't operate as though God speaks. But if there is a positive dad-kid relationship, like the ideal dad-kid relationship, would there not be regular communication there? And we need to respond to God like we expect that because we are first children of God. This is where life started for Jesus. This is where identity begins, the son, the daughter of God. And as a son or daughter of God, whatever you're going through right now, it's going to be okay. Because you're going to be with your dad forever. Before any other earthly responsibility, you're God's kid. Before spouse, before parent. You're a provider second. Your earthly body isn't permanent. This world isn't permanent as we know it. It's all passing away. And you are first God's kid. You're going to get through all this. You're going to be together with your dad forever. I fully believe that we're going to fish together and eat together. And that the God of the universe will specifically tell us what he loves about us specifically. We were made for this kind of friendship with God. Child of God first. And instead of being so stressed out about a lot of things in life, I generally need to spend more time remembering this is all just noise. Me and my dad first. Now, there's a strange contrast in Scripture between Jesus being the Son of God and his favorite nickname for himself. Jesus most often calls himself Son of Man. Almost right out of the gate, he calls himself Son of Man. And Scripture calls him that regularly. And here's why Jesus is our representative. Jesus stands in before God to represent mankind. So in Jesus' day and time, being the son 
not to be sexist, it's just the way it was, being the son, especially the firstborn son, meant that you fully represented your family and were virtually equal with your dad. So when Jesus calls himself son of man, what he's saying is, I represent humanity. It's the sin-free life that he lived that represents humanity to God. It's the death that he paid for sin, the death penalty that he paid that fully represents our death for our sins because he was the son of man. He was humanity's representative. And I find great comfort that Jesus' favorite nickname for himself was the representer of humanity, the son of man, because that means that God sees him when he looks at my humanness. He was more interested in how he could represent humanity than his status as God in the flesh. I have a friend in Canton named Alex Absalom, And he's continually reminding us that that in the Old Testament, um, we were separated from God because of our sin and our own rebellion. And and yet God called us back. He said, no, come on, come on back to me. Rather than rejecting us in anger, what we see is that God is for us. And then not only that, God would send prophets and God gave scripture and, and God would even descend in the form of a cloud and smoke onto the earth so that people realize not only was God for us, God is also with us. God is for us. God is with us. But then in the New Testament, we learn that that God took on flesh and he became human. Now God is one of us. God is for us. God is with us. And God through Jesus is one of us. Jesus the Son of God, the Son of Man, our representative, so that God sees him when he sees us. He took our death penalty as our representative. He defeated death through the resurrection as our representative. Okay, I need to change gears completely now, a little bit of whiplash. I want to get back to the actual, the story and the flow of how Jesus got from loved and cheered in the northmost part of the Israelite territory to the same kind of people screaming for his crucifixion. What went wrong? So he's up north and he realizes that his time has come. It's time to pay for the sins of the world on the cross. He's already in all sorts of hot water with the religious leaders of his day. The clergy, they have things the way they want it. You give the money. You follow the rules. I don't have to because I'm above the rules and out of accountability. And that was the system, and they wanted to keep it that way. Jesus challenged religion, advocated life change and living out faith of the heart versus following all the rules. 
And the problem is, for the religious leaders, he had the miracles to back it up. So he could truly establish or challenge the establishment because he had miracles to back up what he was saying. He had leverage. And there was nothing they could do about that. So they were trying to set traps so that he would say something or do something that would turn the people against him. And they're getting more and more desperate. One important, if you're learning this stuff for the first time, one important data point to keep in mind that plays into why the crowd turned on Jesus. The people were sick of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had kind of consumed Israel, stripped them of their identity. Now now they're just kind of allowed to exist. You know, yeah, you can do your Jew thing. Just pay your taxes and don't cause trouble. Well, for the pride of the Jewish people, they hated this. And they had been promised in their ancient scriptures a liberator, the Messiah, who would come to establish an eternal kingdom and set them free. They're sick of their diminished identity. They're sick of, of, of Roman, the Roman Empire. And, and all they really want is a Messiah to come and liberate them and make them a sovereign, eternal, geographical kingdom. That's what they want from their Messiah. Jesus came to bring a lifestyle. Jesus came to liberate us from sin. They weren't interested in that. They wanted sovereignty as a nation and national recognition. Even his truest and closest disciples, that's really what they wanted, was a kingdom geographical revolution. So, back in Caesarea Philippi, here we go, march to Jerusalem. We're up north. Peter makes this statement, you're the Messiah. Jesus affirms that. So now the anticipation train has left the station. That means as the Messiah, he's going to come and liberate us from the Roman Empire, make us a military power, Jew pride. Here we go. This is where the train is headed. A few days later, Matthew 17, after six days, this is six days after, yes, I'm the Messiah. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, as an early Jewish reader in the book of Matthew was written to Jewish readers, you're seeing now the Messiah is headed up the mountain. What happens on the mountain in Jewish history? People encounter God. And there he was transfigured. Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So Jesus is transfigured and takes the appearance of God. The imagery, shine like the sun and light like clothing, is consistent in Scripture with people catching a glimpse of God. That's what happens. You see God on the mountain with face like the sun and clothes like light. Basically, Peter's faith in the Messiah is now validated. We got a positive ID on the Messiah. Time for the revolution. Now we're going to Jerusalem where it all goes down. Jesus says, I'm God. Six days later, he proves it. By becoming God. 
on the mountaintop. Now, we're headed to a place called Bethany, next stop, where Jesus is going to perform his most obnoxious miracle. We get to Bethany. Jesus learns that his friend Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's rotting in the tomb. We've had the funeral. We've had the funeral dinner. We've cleaned out his closet. He's buried. He's, the, the Bible says there's actually like the stench of death is now amassing in the tomb. He is dead. Jesus has the stone rolled away and yells into the tomb. And what scholars believe happened is Lazarus floats out of the tomb alive. There's special, um, special attention paid on the fact that his, his grave clothes were not cut away until after he was out of the tomb. And Jews were tightly wrapped. You couldn't move. So as near as scholars can tell, he floats out of the tomb. Regardless, just bringing a dead guy back to life after four days, pretty good miracle. I'm the Messiah. I show myself to be God on the mountaintop. Now I'm bringing people back to life who've been dead for four days. You don't do much more to say, I'm the guy. Everybody who sees this immediately believes the revolution is here. It's time. It's pretty tough to beat a military general who can raise his troops to life when they've been killed, right? So this is our guy, and we're right outside of Jerusalem. Bethany's right outside of Jerusalem. Here we go. It's go time. The next week, he marches into Jerusalem, and we'll read about that in a minute. The problem is that he doesn't start anything. All this hype, he allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be beaten. He allows himself to be nailed on a cross. He says nothing to defend himself. But he's not there to free people from Roman oppression. He's there to free people from the curse of sin. He's not there for eternal, he's not there for temporary geographical liberation. He's there for eternal liberation. He disappoints the crowd. The vast majority had welcomed him into Jerusalem as their military king, and they now want him dead because they got their hopes up and he disappointed them. Jesus didn't come to lead a revolution, a military revolution. He came to lead a lifestyle revolution and pay the debt for sin. Now, we're going to talk about atonement next week, and here's my challenge for you guys. If you have friends who are very unfamiliar with the, the, the Jesus message, would love for you to have the courage to invite them next week. Because I want to lay out the basics of the cross and atonement so that everybody understands the grace of God. I'm going to finish up by walking through the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So I hope you see how the crowds turned on him because he disappointed him. That's what led to his crucifixion. That's how the religious leaders were able to rally the people against him. We're going to finish right now by talking through Jesus' march into Jerusalem for the last time. This is what we celebrate typically on Palm Sunday. 
there's profound insight to the humble and compassionate nature of Jesus. He's on his way to be crucified by people who hate him. And yet, ultimately, he's not angry. He's not afraid. He's filled with compassion for the people who are far from God and for the people who hate him. So this is from, actually, it's from Matthew 23. Um, It says 27 up there. It's from Matthew 23. Jesus breaks down and he starts to cry. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This is amazing imagery here for me because we see Jesus who has all the power and authority of God in the universe. He's on a mountaintop. He becomes God. He's on his way to the city and the people there hate him and want him dead. But instead of reacting how we would expect the God of the universe to react in judgment and wrath, Jesus breaks down and starts crying. He's crying from compassion because he loves them. Even though they hate him, he loves them. And what an example for us, because I know so often uh, when it comes to, to Christianity, it's easy to get angry and feel entitled. And when people don't think like us or act like us, we get mad. When, when people are against our God and our way of life, we get mad. Jesus doesn't get mad. He's overcome with compassion because he loves them so much. And he's so desperate for them to turn their lives over to God. And maybe the question for us is, when is the last time that I have had a broken heart because somebody somewhere isn't living life the way that I feel like they should be living? Does that bring out anger? Or does that bring out compassion? And then the other thing is... Maybe your takeaway today is to really see God through this lens because there are plenty of people that are afraid of God. Maybe you've had some kind of, you know, mean authority figure in your life and it's really hard to see that loving God and so you use this as your template and now you're standing face to face with God. It's just you and God. And he sees all of the sin that you have in your life just like he sees all of the sin that I have in my life. And whereas we might expect for the anger of God to be aroused, instead he begins to cry for you and with you. And through those tears says, why won't you just let me be your dad? And you realize for the first time that maybe God really is for you and loves you like a dad. So here's the final scene for the day. This is what we typically celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus has wept for the city. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, came to the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples saying to them, 
Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, the Lord needs them, and he'll, he'll send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, written in the Old Testament hundred years, hundred, hundreds of years prior. It says, say to your daughter Zion, or Jerusalem, Look, Jerusalem, people of Jerusalem, your king, the Messiah, comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So everyone in Jerusalem knew that whenever the Messiah comes, he is going to come into the town riding a donkey. You might expect like a war horse, a chariot. Nope, little donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought a donkey and a colt and placed the cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is Jesus who raises the dead, who's transfigured on the mountain, and now he's coming through the gates of Jerusalem on a donkey. Everybody understands, even though they don't know what it means. They're looking to Jesus as the Messiah. They're filling the streets. The crowds went ahead of him, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna means God save. It means save us now, God. And even though those people didn't understand who Jesus was, they understood that he was God. They didn't understand what he had come to do, but they understood that he was God and he could help. He can raise the dead. He can do anything, and I need help now. And so what I want you to picture is the hearts of the people that day when chaos broke out in Jerusalem. Because even though they were wrong about why he was coming into the city, their hearts were such that they waved palm branches and screamed out, Hosanna, I need help now. Hosanna was the kind of thing that you yell when you're drowning and a boat passes by and somebody has a rope. I can't do anything. I need help now. All right, here's how I want to land this plane. I want you to ask a question. Come on up, Maddie. I want you to ask a question. Um, where in my life do I need Jesus now? What's going on in life that is out of your control and all you can do is say, Hosanna, I need help now. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe there's something at work or in parenting. Maybe there's an addiction or some anger issues. You just can't beat it and you can't figure it out. I want to invite you during this song to just meditate on that area and say, Hosanna. Jesus, I need help now. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask that we ask this together as a family. That you would drum up within us 
some areas of our life, maybe even that we're not aware of, where we have clearly lost control and we have no ability to regain control and we just need you. And we look to you as our Redeemer, as our King, as our Messiah. Jesus, you can raise the dead, even something that's been long dead. And so we say to you, Hosanna. Hosanna.